This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, as America continues to come out of its quarantine, the economic downturn continues to take its toll hitting those who can least afford it the hardest. Despite a prediction from the CDC that by month's end, the death toll in the U.S. will likely exceed 100,000, President Trump continues to put a sunshine and rainbow spin on the pandemic. It'll go away. Uh, it may flare up and it may not flare up. We have met the moment and we have prevailed. What planet is he on? More than 30 million unemployed and we have prevailed? 1.3 million infected, 80,000 American fatalities. The president is increasingly anxious to get the economy back on track. Vaccine or no vaccine, we're back. And now vows to have a vaccine by the end of the year. This is a Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says that's just what the economy needs. For the economy to fully recover, people will have to be fully confident, and that, that may have to await the arrival of, of, of a vaccine. We'll have a preview of Scott Pelley's 60 Minutes interview. And we'll ask Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar if having millions of Americans vaccinated by year's end is realistic. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb will also weigh in. The House passes a $3 trillion bill full of pandemic relief, but Senate Republicans say it's dead on arrival. We'll talk with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Former White House economic advisor Gary Cohn will also join us, and we'll take a look at the skyrocketing number of Americans who need help feeding their families. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. By the end of today, 48 states will have reopened businesses or loosened stay-at-home orders in some form. Yet none of them have met the federal guidelines of having had two weeks of a declining number of cases. At this point, it's hard to know what the impact is yet of the reopenings, either on the number of cases or on the economy. CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman reports from Atlanta. Mark. Good morning, Margaret. Georgia is one of 48 states to reopen this weekend, every state but Massachusetts and Connecticut. There's no question that raises the viral risk, but every governor faces competing pressures. This weekend, a reopening America included beaches and parks. Whether it's smart, whether it's safe, is your judgment call. This Northern California restaurant defied a county order to shelter in place. I've had it. So have all my customers. So is the state of California. Let's open up. Crowded as it was, virtually no one wore a face mask. All the people in there sitting next to each other. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. They're thinking the economy keeps taking casualties. 36 million workers filed for unemployment in the last two months. Since the crisis began, more than 100,000 small businesses have shuttered for good. They're also thinking in the last two weeks, America's new COVID cases have declined. But reopening renews worries about a resurgence. How you act 
will determine what happens to you. Literally. Behavior is the wild card. Like this scuffle in San Antonio. Store employees confronted a customer who refused to wear a face mask. Texas reported its highest one-day total of cases Saturday, with more businesses set to reopen tomorrow. Health experts still don't know how far the virus has spread. Only 3% of Americans have been tested. Those experts credit the drop in new cases to physical distancing, stay-at-home orders, and face masks. And they shudder, imagining a reopened America looking like this crowded park in San Francisco. Reopening safely takes discipline. This weekend will show whether people have it, whether they respect the viral threat by following all the safety rules, with Memorial Day weekend just ahead. Margaret. Mark Strassman, thanks. We go now to London and CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer. Margaret, all over the world, the dilemma is the same. How and how fast to lift the lockdown, certainly in countries where the infection rate is declining, but also in some where it's still climbing, like Russia. Moscow was doused in disinfectant as President Putin announced he is planning to ease restrictions, even though Russia now has the second fastest infection rate in the world after the U.S. Another epicenter is Brazil, where health workers and gravediggers know this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. But in a small victory, Brazil's COVID-belittling President Bolsonaro has finally started wearing a mask. Sort of. By contrast, in Europe, the number of COVID victims is going down and things are opening up. It's a calculated risk that life can return to normal, or normal-ish, without provoking a fresh coronavirus crisis. Even the largest church in the world, St. Peter's in the Vatican, got a final deep clean before its reopening tomorrow. The exception is the UK. A handful of protesters did demonstrate in London yesterday against the continuing lockdown. But they were outnumbered by the police and the rest of the country, which is opting for continued caution. On the other side of the world, after a parched 53 days, pubs reopened in northern Australia. It's delicious, it's cold, and it's the first one. And in Kiev... Nurses cared for 51 tiny babies, all of them born in the pandemic, to surrogates. No one wants borders to reopen more than the baby's future parents, who are desperate to get to Ukraine to pick them up. And in a reminder of how persistent this virus is, the city of Wuhan, where it originated and which almost managed to stamp it out, is now going to test all 11 million of its inhabitants. It's an attempt to find and isolate people who have no symptoms but are carriers before they can set off a second wave. Margaret? Elizabeth Palmer in London. Thank you. We want to go now to Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. He joins us from HHS. Good morning, Mr. Secretary. Good morning, Margaret. Good to be with you again. Great to have you. Uh, Operation Warp Speed, which is what the White House is calling this push to have a vaccine by the end of the year. 300 million doses is the promise. Can you be clear here? Is the pledged that all 328 million Americans will be able to get a shot in their arm by the end of the year? Well, Margaret, let's be clear. That's a goal. And, you know, I, I think the Gretzky's once said that uh, you fail to achieve 100 percent of the goals you don't set. And uh, so it's not a pledge. It's a goal of what we're going to mobilize the entire U.S. government and private sector to achieve. What happened is, you know, these drug companies and vaccine makers, they all said it's going to take this amount of time because they're using their traditional approaches. You, you do phase one, phase two, phase three trials in sequence. Then you do manufacturing. Well, the president said that's not acceptable. So what we're doing is bringing the inefficiency out of the development process to make the development side faster to get to safe and effective vaccines. And at the same time, we're going to scale up commercial size manufacturing right. and produce hundreds of millions of doses at risk. They may not pan out. They might not prove to be safe and effective, but we'll have it so we could begin administration right away. You said hundreds of millions of doses. That is not the same thing as saying 
hundreds of millions of vaccines ready to be administered to the American public. You said this week that the entire American population uh, could receive vaccines by January. That's the goal. Can you... That's a that's, yeah, that hundreds, hundreds of millions. We have hundreds of millions of people. So 300 million is the goal. And by January that we would set, whether by one or multiple vaccine candidates uh, to be able to have. Let's let's focus our energies so this, on actually getting this, those vaccines developed at absolutely. this point. Absolutely. I just want to set expectations for the American people, because clearly you're going to have a lot of people wanting this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, will it require booster shots? Are you sure two, three hundred million doses is sufficient? Well, those are great questions, Margaret. And that's actually going to be part of the development programs that you study is, do you, is it a single shot? Do you have a multiple with a booster? What type of immune response do you get? You're, that's why you don't go into battle with just one uh, target here. Uh, so we had 100 candidates originally. We've narrowed it to 14, and we're going to keep narrowing that down to maybe four, five, six that we really place the big financial bets behind and drive on. And we might actually have multiple vaccines, some appropriate for different populations in different settings as we as we see the data get generated here. President Trump said on Monday, we have prevailed. Um, on that same day, May 11th, all 12 of the different models that the CDC uses projected that there will be over 100,000 deaths by June 1st. How can the administration say we've prevailed when you see a death rate climbing like that? Well, well, Margaret, uh, as you'll remember, the president clarified that in response to a question that by prevailed, he meant with regard to testing by building a a really novel, comprehensive private public sector diagnostic system here in the United States. He did not mean the disease burden here. And he actually, I think, clarified that you could never speak of prevailing or or success when there's even a single death. Every death is tragic. The disease burden here here and across the world has been has been horrible. We've worked to minimize that. We believe that our actions to delay and, 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 and flatten the curve uh, saved hundreds of thousands of lives that otherwise could have been lost. But, but that's still nothing to revel in in terms of any loss of life is tragic for the president or for any of us in the public health world. Absolutely. But, but given that some of the states are starting to reopen parts of their economy and there's a, a lag time of sometimes two to three weeks before you see the virus show up, how how much of a sense do you have about whether reopening is reinfecting the populace at large? Well, these will be really important questions, Margaret, for us to study through our comprehensive surveillance system. So that's why a critical part of reopening has been influenza-like illness surveillance and other hospital admission surveillance, as well as uh, syndromic testing of asymptomatic individuals, especially in high-risk communities. And that's actually what's going to be really helpful with this federal system and the approach the president's taking of having each state taking a localized decision. It's going to give us really good data. You know, so we don't know George- the risk of reopening, in, in other words, just yet. But you are going to be monitoring it, is what you're saying. We certainly, we certainly will be monitoring. But we've seen some initial instances of states like Georgia that have reopened, Florida that's reopening that we have not seen. But again, it's still early days. Um, we think the tools are there, and it's also important to remember. You know, this gets set up as a health versus economy kind of conflict. Right. It's actually health versus health. We see we see suicidality. We see reduction in cardiac procedures, cancer screenings, um, pediatric vaccinations. There is a real, a very real health consequence to these shutdowns that must be balanced against as we, as we try to reopen this economy and move forward. Absolutely. Uh, whistleblower Dr. Rick Bright um, is going to appear on 60 Minutes tonight. He specifically names you in his complaint as having downplayed the catastrophic threat. The last time that you were with us here on Face the Nation was March 1st. And at that time, you told me what your viewers need to know is the risk to the average Americans remain low. Do you stand by that? I mean, do you take responsibility for any missteps? You might have so, taken. So, Margaret, I think if we found the entire clip, uh, because I was using words only that Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, Dr. Shuket, Dr. Messonnier would tell me to say and would repeat publicly also, I believe what I said is the risk to the average American at this time remains low, um, but that could change rapidly. We always were, I was always focused on warning that the situation could change, that at the moment the risk was low um, to any individual right. American. Uh, so, 
I stand by that in the sense that that's what the public health people were. I don't make this stuff up. I go with what Fauci and Redfield and Shookit and Messonnier and others uh, say because they're the public health experts. Certain, certainly, but they report up to you. The CDC uh, has been blamed for failure and mistakes with testing. Do you take responsibility for that? Uh, so we were confronting a situation here that's completely novel. There has never been a national immediate testing regime across public and private sectors. We have had to literally build this from the ground up, Margaret. That's what, that's what folks don't quite understand here is that the CDC's role is to develop a, an initial fairly low throughput public health test that health labs will, will do for initial diagnosis. But then we count on the private sector actually to scale up these high throughput large tests capacities. And that's what we've done in historic time. You know, these tests normally so you, would take six to nine months to get. You don't take responsibility for any problems that the CDC has admitted to having had. We, you know, what, did the, what problem did the CDC have? The CDC had an issue as they scaled up manufacturing of tests to get them out to about 90 public health labs. There was apparently a contamination at an end stage there on the third part of the reagent that never led to false negatives or false positives. But that prevented some of the scale up for a couple of weeks. But that was never going to be the backbone of testing, of broad mass testing in the United States, Margaret. That depends on the companies like Abbott and Roche and Thermo Fisher well, through these high I just want to clarify, because your colleague, Peter Navarro, uh, has said that the CDC let the country down. Given the CDC well, reports up to you, do you I, take responsibility you, for that? What do you think about that? I don't believe the CDC let this country down. I believe the CDC serves an important public health role. And what was always critical was to get the private sector to the table. All right. Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time. Thank you, Margaret. Face the Nation will be right back with Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We go now to Capitol Hill and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Madam Speaker, good morning to you. Good morning. I want to talk about this $3 trillion package that you just passed, but I want to quickly get your reaction to the White House, one White House advisor saying that the CDC let the American people down with testing. You just heard the Health and Human Services Secretary say he does not believe that is the case. What do you think happened here? Did the CDC well, let the American people down? Well, the CDC was grossly cut in the president's budget. But setting aside how we got here, let's talk about how we go forward. Uh, it is important for us. Uh, the American people want the economy to open up. We all do. Uh, we want our societies to, op to open up. We all do. And in order to do that, we have testing, tracing, treatment, and isolation. And that is the path. It's what the scientists advise. That is what we do uh, in the HEROES Act. Uh, we talk about how we can get there with a plan. This is, we haven't had a plan. Let's go forward in a bipartisan way to have a plan, a plan to test. We have no idea the size of this challenge uh, to our country because we have not sufficiently tested. Let's test so that we can diagnose and then we can treat and then uh, decrease the number of people who have died. Imagine that 90,000 Americans, almost 90,000 Americans, have lost this life to their lives to this awful villain. Uh, we, whatever our differences, have to join together to fight this enemy to the lives and the livelihood of the American people. 90,000 people. Uh, we send our condolences and our prayers to their families. We will always carry them in our hearts. Uh, sadly, the number is projected to even grow, and then nearly a million and a half people infected. So we have a, a common enemy, and as we go forward, let's do so with a strategic mm -hmm. plan, a plan that has a timetable, it has, a, uh, it has a, a 
a, a goal, a timetable, right. benchmarks and the rest to get the job done for the American people. I want to ask about your plan, because as you just mentioned, that HEROES Act is the $3 trillion bill that you just passed. Republicans um, are looking at a different deadline, say that the enhanced unemployment benefits that exist now don't expire until July. Let's see what reopening looks like and what a new package should be tailored to. Why do you think there's not merit to that argument that a few more weeks before crafting a bill could be more effective? No, time is of the essence, and we passed our proffer, what we put forth. In the past bills, they put forth their a proposal, and then we worked in a bipartisan way. That's what we'll anticipate now. Across the country, Republican and Democratic mayors, governors, and the rest all want this bill to happen in terms of uh, the investments in state and local and tribal and territorial governments, and also in terms of the testing to be done uh, across the country, largely at the state level. Uh, time is very important. We have lost time, but again, setting aside how we got here, uh, we cannot take a pause. They may think it's okay to pause, but people are hungry across America. Hunger doesn't take a pause. People are jobless across mm -hmm. America. That doesn't take a pause. People don't know how they're going to pay their rent across the country. We have, we have to address this with humanity. Has there, been any, has there been any Republican response, any counteroffer or opening to begin negotiations since you passed this bill, which the White House says has no chance of becoming law? That isn't so. It, it, we, and no bill that is proffered uh, will become law without negotiation. So, yeah. But, again, with the other bills, we have four bills all bipartisan. Uh, the bill that uh, Leader McConnell put forth, the CARES One, was his offer. Nobody said doesn't have a chance because he just put it forth. Mm -hmm. uh, the interim PPP bill was his offer. Has we he reached out to you? Well, we just passed the bill with a matter of, a matter of hours ago. But I do have confidence. I uh, have confidence because the American people and the governors and mayors, as I said, in a bipartisan way, know that we have to support uh, our local government. That's where our health we have health care workers, police and fire, first responders, in other ways, emergency, our teachers, our sanitation workers. You know, they're at risk of losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. Many of these people risk their lives to save lives, and now they may lose their jobs. Repub and by the way, it's, I think it's important to note that everything Thing, sounds like a big number, but everything that we have in the state and local column there is less than the Republicans put in their tax scam to give 83% of the benefits to the top 1%. Liability protections for employers. That's what Republicans say is their red line. To get what you want, what will you give on that? Well, we have no red lines, but the fact is the best protection for our workers and for their employers is to follow very good OSHA mandatory guidelines, and we have that in our bill. And, and that protects the workers, protects their lives, as well as protects the employer if they follow the guidelines. Remember, when people go to work, they go home. They could bring it home to their children, or they could bring it home to a senior living in their home. There's a, this is beyond just the individual at, at work. Madam Speaker, uh, late Friday, President Trump sent you a letter saying that he was going to remove the inspector general of the State Department, Steve Linick. This is the fourth IG to be removed in six weeks. Why was Linick removed? What's behind this? Well, this is new to us and typical of the White House uh, announcing something that is very unsavory. They would do it on, late on a Friday night. Uh, the fact is, as you indicated, it's the fourth inspector general. Inspectors general, uh, that office was created after Watergate uh, to make sure that there was integrity in the departments, the agencies of government. Uh, they're supposed to show cause. Even Republicans in Congress are concerned Was about, he investigating the Secretary out. of State? When you say unsavory, is that what you mean? Well, I mean unsavory when you take out someone who is there uh, to enforce the, uh, to stop waste, fraud, abuse, or other violations of the law uh, that are, are, they believe to be happening. So again, let's take a look and see. The president has the right to fire any federal employee. But the fact is, if it looks like it's in retaliation uh, for something that the attorney, the IG, the inspector general is doing, was, that could be unlawful. Was he investigating the secretary of state, as Elliot Engel has said? 
I, I trust the, uh, the word of my chairman. Uh, again, I'm just passed a big bill, mm -hmm. and I, I, I only got this letter from the president that night, but he didn't say in his letter any reason except that he lost confidence. Well, he's lost confidence in other IGs because they have been investigating or looking, have reason to believe uh, that something okay. should be investigated that he is doing. I really Understood. do think that presidents should not have the ability to Madam undo investigations into their own actions. Madam Speaker, thank you very much for joining us today. My we pleasure. have to leave it there. Thank you so much. We'll be back with former White House economic advisor Gary Cohn and former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Last week, another 3 million Americans filed for unemployment. Retail sales and factory output recorded record declines, signs of the economic damage from coronavirus. Tonight on 60 Minutes, Scott Pelley talks with the most powerful man in the finance world, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Here's a preview. What economic reality do the American people need to be prepared for? Well, I, I would take a more optimistic uh, cut at that, if I could, and that is, uh, this is a time of, of great suffering and difficulty, and it's come on us so quickly and with such force that you, you really can't put into words uh, the, the pain people are feeling and the uncertainty they're realizing. And it's going to take a while for us to get back, but I, I would just say this, in the long run, and even in the medium run, you wouldn't want to bet against the American economy. This economy will recover. It may take a while. It may take a period of time. It could stretch through the end of next year. We really don't know. Can there be a recovery without a reasonably effective vaccine? Assuming there's not a second wave of, uh, of, uh, of the coronavirus, I think you'll see the economy recover steadily through the second half of this year. For the economy to fully recover, people will have to be fully confident, and that, that may have to await the arrival of, of, of a vaccine. Scott's full interview with the Fed chairman airs tonight on 60 Minutes. We go now to Gary Cohn. He is the former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. He joins us from Long Island, New York. Good morning. Good morning, Margaret. You just heard the Federal Reserve chairman say uh, no full recovery until there is a vaccine. The, is the logical extension of that that there will be widespread unemployment well into next year? So, first of all, I thought Chairman Powell did a very good job of summarizing the economic situation with some optimism and saying, look, if we don't get a second outbreak in the fall, which is just predicted, we don't know if that will happen or not, that we, we, we will continue to grow our economy and our economy will continue to have a natural recovery. So, and he was quite optimistic, and, and I am quite optimistic. The U.S. economy is quite resilient. And I, and I have to remind people that... We ended up in this economic situation by necessity. We made a conscientious decision to shut down our economy and have everyone stay home to flatten the curve, which right. was the right decision. But we created this economic situation. We can unwind this much more quickly than some of the comparisons that we're making in time where, where there were situations where our unemployment data happened over a long period of time because right. of declining employment and declining sales. But, but, the, but the counter to that is uh, there are people in immediate and severe pain now. I mean, the Fed revealed this week that 40 percent of people making under $40,000 a year lost their jobs <clears throat> in just one month in March. I mean, we're hearing about food insecurity. Uh, the Fed chair pointed to Congress and you just heard the Speaker of the House say time is of the essence. Do you agree with her that more emergency aid needs to happen now? Or can you wait, as Republicans want to do? So I, I think I agree with 50 percent of what the, the Speaker was saying. So part of the HEROES Act was to get money or is to get money 
to the states, to the state and local government. And I do think that is very important. The state and local governments have been hard hit. The last thing we want to see is state and local governments in our time of need having to lay off firemen, policemen, teachers, first responders, frontline people that we're relying upon for our everyday life. That would be the complete wrong outcome here. So the federal government does have to step in and help out states. Just like they've helped small businesses and big, mis- big businesses, they should help the states. That doesn't mean they should re- return the states to perfect financial condition. On the other half of the bill, and you didn't ask me about that, there are some things in there that are much more aimed at a a recovery than the current position we're in. In addition to that, if we really want to get the people back to work that, that Chairman Powell was talking about, we need to reopen the economy. Those people earning less than $40,000 a year are very important, and we rely on them. But think about the health care system. The health care system is 20% of our GDP. If we get our health care system back up and running, a lot of people in the lower wage bracket end up working in the health care system. We need so, that to happen. If, if we get people going back to work, think of what it means to go back to work. You get sure, in your car, you but drive, it's not, it's you not go neither, to the gas or, It's not neither or. It's a how, right? And part of what it, Congress would be doing is figuring that out policy-wise. The administration is floating the idea of a payroll tax cut, uh, slashing the corporate tax rate, suspending capital gains on assets bought between now and the end of the year. How does any of that help the people who are in pain now? Well, look, Margaret, we have to decide where we are. Are we responding to the crisis Are we trying to stimulate a recovery? And look, this is a very difficult situation because the federal government sits on top and then each state is going to decide what we're doing. If we're trying to respond to the crisis, we're right. And this is where I agree with the speaker. We have to get the state's money to help them respond to the crisis. If we're trying to stimulate economic growth, which would be the second half of the equation, we would use a different set of tools to stimulate economic growth. And we have a huge toolbox of tools we can use to stimulate economic growth. But those specific proposals, payroll tax cuts, lowering the corporate interest rate, does that do any of what you're talking about? Well, look, payroll tax cuts puts money in the pockets of people who are working. Right. Right now, we're talking about the unemployed people. Exactly. Payroll tax cut doesn't help an unemployed person, so I'm not in favor of a payroll tax cut. So what are you saying? Are you saying more direct to work? Okay. But are you also saying more direct aid to people? Because one of the the questions around extending unemployment benefits as they are now is this unintended consequence of people actually sometimes making more on unemployment than (laughs) if they take the option to go back to the employer that maybe furloughed them. So what's the solution there? So, Margaret, look, I think you just hit on a very important concept. When we first started the enhanced unemployment benefits, we did it for a specific purpose. We wanted to, and we needed to get people out of the economy. We needed them to stay home. So we changed the definition of unemployment. We said, look, stay home. Don't look for a job. We don't want you to leave your house. Now I think we have to go back to the more traditional definition of unemployment. If you're unemployed, you get benefits. But if you need to be looking for a job and if you get offered a job, you should have to take that job and you should come off of unemployment benefits. We need to transition out of the extraordinary measures that were justifiable 60 days ago, 90 days ago, um, into the the real world of Mm -hmm. what is the the, the continuous definition of of unemployment. Um, Two things. Do you think equity markets are behaving rationally and... Are you accepting the idea that the tax cuts that you personally helped usher through for the Trump administration may have to disappear, as so many on Wall Street are predicting, to pay for all of this? First of all, I I have said it, and I'll say it again. We now understand that we have to be in positions of federal government to spend 2 to $5 trillion at a moment's notice to support our infrastructure and support our economy. That said, we need to sit down and look at both sides of the equation. We need to sit down and look at the revenue side of the equation, and we need to look at the expense side of the equation. So I would say, yes, that the tax situation in the United States has to be readjusted. Everything should be on the table. But remember, the expense side of the equation, everything should be on the table as well. As far as the stock market goes, remember the stock yeah. market. So, so your tax is cuts, you vi- mean, you accept would likely have to go away. So, so I think everything is on the table. And, and remember, remember, Margaret, I think the tax cuts are completely misconstrued. We gave big tax 
breaks to, to lower income earners, and we taxed higher income earners. And in fact, in the HEROES bill, you'll see they're trying to roll back the SALT deduction. The SALT deduction right. was a way that we taxed most of the higher earners. Only the top 30% of earners really use the SALT deduction. They're the ones that own the big homes and pay the big real estate taxes and pay big state income taxes, and they're using that deduction. Rolling that deduction back does not make sense right now when the federal government needs money in, in this environment. On, on the stock market, look, the stock market yeah. is very forward-looking. And I think the stock market, like Chairman Paul, is fairly optimistic of where we're going to get to and, and, and there is a path forward. And okay. I will remind people, it's also, it's made up of the largest companies in right. America. And a lot of those companies have actually become more essential to our daily lives today, not less essential. If there right. were an index of small local businesses, I think okay. that index would be trading at depressed values. Gary Cohn, thank you for joining us. We have to leave it there. We'll be back. Mark. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you heard Secretary Azar say hundreds of millions of people, 300 million doses of a vaccine by January. Is that realistic? Well, first, we have to remember that uh, the doses probably um, we have to cut it in half because many of these vaccines, and Sanofi has already spoken to this, you're going to probably need two doses of the vaccine. So whatever supply we have is probably sufficient to actually dose and inoculate about half the number of people. I think our expectation should be that we're going to have millions of doses of vaccine available in the fall to do large phase three clinical trials. Uh, maybe low tens of millions of doses if multiple manufacturers make it through phase one, phase two studies. And we might make them available under an emergency use authorization if we do have outbreaks or an epidemic in the fall for certain high-risk groups. Another thing to consider is that these vaccines may not be completely protective. What they may do is prevent you from getting COVID, the disease, um, and from getting severe pneumonia. But you may still get the infection, so you may still be able to get and transmit the infection, but you just won't get as sick. And that may be how these vaccines ultimately are used. And so what you might do in that situation, if we do have an epidemic, is use the vaccines on people who are really high, at high risk of a bad outcome, like people maybe in a nursing home. But I think our base assumption should be that we'll have millions of vaccines, maybe low tens of millions of vaccines, if multiple manufacturers are successful in those early studies. So 328 million Americans, 8 billion people in the world, they're going to want this overnight. What you're saying is that's not happening by January, period. Well, remember, it takes, a, it takes a while to manufacture vaccine, and then once you manufacture it, you have to do stability testing. So you don't just manufacture vaccine and roll it off the line and then send it out um, into the, the public to, be, to have people inoculated with it. You're going to hold it. You do stability testing, so you make sure the vaccine is appropriate for use. Um, in 2009, with H1N1, when we went to make that vaccine, so we had the vaccine construct. It worked well in the laboratory and in small-scale studies. When we went to scale up the manufacturing, we found we weren't getting good yield with it. And we actually lost about two months in that process of trying to make that vaccine in time for the fall. So a lot of things, there's a lot of uncertainties as you go from vaccines that you're manufacturing on a smaller scale in, a, in an experimental fashion in early-stage studies when you try to scale up and get volume. So a lot of things can go wrong. A lot of things can be delayed. It's very hard to get to the point where you're manufacturing at high, high quantities. I would say that's probably more likely a 2021 event that we're going to have the vaccine available in sufficient quantities to mass inoculate the population. And remember, there might be 200 million people who want this vaccine, who are eligible for it. That might take 400 million doses. And so it's probably a 2021 event. I do think we'll have the vaccine available in the fall for use, maybe to ring fence an outbreak if you have an outbreak in a large city, or to inoculate a certain portion of the population on an experimental basis to protect them because they're at high risk of a bad outcome. We're learning more about this virus, including the potential risk to children. What would you tell parents who are concerned about these reports out of Italy, the U.K., and now the U.S., that young children are being affected? 
Look, the reports are deeply concerning. There appears to be some kind of post-viral syndrome associated with this virus. The WHO and the CDC have now stepped forward and said they've associated it with this virus, although it's not definitive, the causal relationship. It appears to be some kind of post-viral immune-type phenomena. We see this in other kinds of viruses. What we don't know is a denominator. We don't know how many kids have actually had the virus. Is it hundreds of thousands or millions of children that have had the virus and we're seeing you know, maybe 100 or 200 of these cases? Or if only thousands of kids had the virus and we're seeing hundreds of cases, that would be deeply concerning if the incidence was that high. This was first detected by the British April 26th. The Italians have reported on a cluster. And the New York City doctors and health officials were the first to report on a cluster here in the United States. They've now reported on more than 100 of these cases and three tragic deaths. But again, we don't know that denominator of how many kids are getting infected. There was a study in Science Magazine about two weeks ago that said that children are probably a third as likely to get infected with coronavirus as adults. So that means that kids are getting infected, but probably at a much lower rate than adults, but they're still getting infected. And if you figure maybe upwards of 20 million people in the U.S. have mm-hmm. had the infection at this point, and that's possible, that means a lot of kids might have had it as well. Well, I know the CDC did put out some guidance on that this week, saying call your pediatrician if your kid has any of the rashes like we just showed you on the screen. Um, but right. on the, the issue of the CDC, you, you said before on this program the CDC needs to be sharing more information than they are in terms of what doctors are, are seeing and learning. Um, there need to be more specific guidelines for businesses and schools. You heard a White House advisor say the CDC failed the country on testing this morning. Uh, Alex Azar disagreed with that, the Health and Human Services Secretary. How do you assess what is happening at the CDC right now? Well, I disagree with that assessment as well about the diagnostic test. Even if the CDC had rolled out that test perfectly, there still wouldn't have been enough testing in place in the nation to do what we call sentinel surveillance to try to detect this virus earlier. What needed to happen was someone needed to pick up the phone and call the CEOs of LabCorp and Quest and the other big labs probably sometime in January or at least in early February. Who would that person have been? The Health and Human Services Secretary or the FDA Commissioner? It would have been... It would have been one of those two. It would have been someone within HHS to ask them to spin up tests. And if they had asked the CEOs to do that, um, I'm, I'm willing to bet that they would have done it and you would have gotten the big labs in the game. That's what needed to happen. As far as CDC is concerned, I mean, I think the part of the agency where I think there could be more information is trying to catalog the collected clinical experience. We've now had more than a million people infected with this in the United States, probably tens of millions of people infected. We've had hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations, 90,000 deaths. We haven't seen a really definitive, systematic accounting of the collected clinical experience with those patients and their outcomes and what interventions were used on them. This is what CDC does, puts out this information in the setting of public health emergency so it can inform what we're doing. We're learning a lot of this by word of mouth with physicians, even on Twitter, that, that people have coagulopathy. So their blood's clotting. We're learning that maybe you shouldn't be ventilating patients on respirators as aggressively as we were. We're learning that they, many patients are getting blood clots to their lungs, and that's what may be causing some of the rapid decompensation. Mm-hmm. Now we're learning about this pediatric syndrome. So we're learning a lot that should be coming from the CDC. I think that's where we can be doing much more putting out this information. And the guidelines are a separate matter. Okay. I think the more that CDC puts out very detailed guidelines, the better businesses can restart. All of us want more facts. Thank you, Dr. Gottlieb. Appreciate it. We'll be Thanks back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Among the many disturbing pictures that we've become accustomed to seeing since the pandemic started are those of people seeking help feeding their families. The lines at food banks have been shocking. The numbers are too. In April, more than one in five U.S. households reported not having sufficient resources to buy food. That number increased to two in five households, 41 percent, for mothers with children 12 and under. We go now to Dallas and Claire Babineau-Fontenot. She is the CEO of Feeding America, the nation's largest hunger relief organization. Good morning to you. Good morning. We've heard the statistics in terms of who is most vulnerable, and how hard they are getting hit. We also know that food prices had their biggest spike uh, in decades just last month. This seems like the perfect storm. 
Uh, what are you seeing at your facilities right now? Who is coming and what do they need? Well, Margaret, I think you used the right term. It is, in fact, the perfect storm. We're seeing a marked increase in demand um, to the tune of, on average, 60 percent more people showing up in need of our services. Um, and at the, at the time that we're having that increase in demand, we have a decrease in donations, we have an increase in cost of food, and we have a decrease in volunteers. So it is, in fact, a perfect storm. How so are many of the people who are coming... Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, please no, ahead. please. So how are you managing that? And, and, and is, is the person that you are serving now, as challenging as it is, different from what you saw just a few months ago? Is it a different demographic? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, that 40 percent on average of the people that we're seeing now um, have never relied upon the charitable food system before now. So we're definitely seeing different people showing up. So many of the people who are there, they're kind of familiar to us. Some of the people who were donors are now in line in need of our services. So there's been a change, uh, to be sure. Uh, but one of the things that I think the American public simply wasn't aware of is that even before this pandemic, there were nearly 40 million people who were food insecure and um, over 11 million of them were children. So we've had a challenge for a while. This pandemic has just heightened that challenge, and um, a lot of people are in need of help right now. I know things like uh, diapers aren't covered by food stamps. Are, are, are items like that what you need at your facilities? What are you looking for right now to serve, in particular, those children? Well, we need um, a, a whole host of things. Uh, first and foremost, we need food. So, um, what we have done is we've had a remarkable outpouring of support from across the country in, in terms of dollars so that we can purchase food. We've also had some assistance from the uh, Congress and some of the legislation that's, that's already been passed, some help from the administration in the form of deregulation so that we're able to provide that food in a new way. Um, but there continues to be a need. I I don't know that I mentioned that so far uh, the members of our network just since March have provided over a billion uh, meals to people facing hunger. But our estimates are that over the course of the next 12 months that the need just inside of our system is over 8 billion. So big need um, and um, across all of those indices that you just described. Absolutely. Brookings said one in five American children are going hungry. I know you just told us about the pain you're seeing, particularly with kids. Forty-one percent of mothers with children ages 12 and under report food insecurity. What is it? I read that you need food and items from manufacturers, not necessarily yes. from individuals. Explain what's changed. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I don't know that I would I would limit it just to uh, to manufacturers. So maybe the best thing for me to do is to start from the top and say uh, what the hierarchy are of things that we think are absolutely essential right now. You mentioned SNAP just a few moments ago. Food stamps. Truly, SNAP is the, uh, yeah, formerly known as food stamps. Thank you for that. Um, for every one meal that we're able to provide in the charitable food system, SNAP can provide nine and one of the interesting things about SNAP is not only is it good for people right now in the, mid, in the middle of a pandemic and an emergency, uh, but it's also good for the economy. We have data that shows that for every dollar invested in SNAP, the return is $1.70. So there are lots of good reasons for all of us to be thinking about and urging um, our members of Congress to pass additional legislation so that we can increase access to SNAP and so that we can increase the thresholds in terms of how much people can receive from SNAP. So that's, that's first and foremost. Secondly, um, as I mentioned before, we, we're doing—by the way, uh, may I take the opportunity to just acknowledge the remarkable people in this network and in other nonprofits as well who are really stepping up to this challenge and mm -hmm. providing these services to people when they need it. But the gap hasn't closed. We've done—we we did some analysis that showed— over a six-month window, our analysis showed that in our network alone that the gap was about $1.4 billion. So this $3 that billion assumed, that the USDA is doing in terms of taking food from farmers and bringing it to banks, that's not solving the issue? 
Well, it's helping, and we hope it will help. It's early days, and we're going to do everything in our power to make that program successful. Okay. Because an additional $3 billion in food would, would certainly be helpful right now. But the gap still won't be closed, even with that effort. So my encouragement to your audience and to members of Congress and the administration Understood. and people all across the country is let's just keep trying to help, uh, yes. and we can close this gap together. We agree with you. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's it for today. Thank you for watching. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, former National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and CEO of Feeding America, Claire Babineau-Fontenot. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.